I, w- I would like to pray to get started. I always feel the need for prayer when I'm trying to speak. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for the worship we experience. Uh, thank you for the fellowship that we have. And thank you for the truth that we hear proclaimed. Uh, help us in all things to, to grow up in our faith. And in Jesus Christ. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, We were talking about reason and faith. There's a lot said about reason and faith. And, you know, you might have heard it said, after everything is said and done, there's always a lot more said than done. Uh, We talked about what is reason. And I mentioned that the Bible does not oppose faith to reason or see them as antagonistic. Partially, this just makes sense, since reason and faith are aspects of your, your mind and your consciousness, which, by the way, are non-material, despite what materialism may try and assert, that your mind is just your brain chemistry. So faith and reason are really aspects of what I would call your unitary soul. So... Faith is essentially trust. Uh, this, this is not, really isn't rocket surgery, as they say. Um, Dr. Dawkins, Pro- Professor Dawkins, uh, with unintended irony, I'm sure it was unintended, spoke about how, well, scientists don't really need faith, except when they do. So he actually acknowledges that Faith is an essential part of human existence. It just is, and it's part of who we are. He just says that what he has faith in, as in science and the scientific method, is valid, while faith in religious truths is not. And he is famous, and so are a lot of Internet atheists, famous for saying that you know, Christians believe things for, for no evidence whatsoever. Which is not true, and the repeating of it constantly doesn't make it true. But it does persuade some Christians that maybe they should you know, look elsewhere for support of their faith. And so they look to emotion. I'm not really going to talk about emotion. And as I've said before, under similar circumstances, I have nothing against emotion. I have one every once in a while myself. But emotion cannot sustain faith. Um, actually, technically, at the bottom, nothing can sustain your faith except the Holy Spirit. But I'm persuaded, just as uh, God uses means to announce the good news, as in the preaching of the gospel, and in gender faith, the Holy Spirit also uses means, including apologetics, to sustain our faith. So I think faith is primary in the sense that it literally starts at your mother's breast or bottle. I'm pretty sure I was bottle-fed because that's what happened to kids in the 50s. We got, we got bottle-fed. But the interaction between faith and reasoning is thus dynamic. And as a matter of fact, the, the so-called war between science and religion and faith and reason is entirely overblown and after a while it becomes really kind of tedious and, and annoying on both sides so on, on the religious side you get people who are fond of quoting Martin Luther that reason is a whore yes he said that 
even as he used reason to explain his theology. Now, Luther did have a robust concern for the fallibility and the finitude of reason, which we should take heed to. Um, on the other side, though, you get uh, people who paradoxically have a robust faith in reason uh, to the point where many champions of what I'll call scientism, it's not my term, it's just the belief that science provides the only answers and science is almost literally the salvation of mankind, that champions of, of scientism and atheism have a robust and unquestioning faith in human reason despite its regular and egregious failures. Um, I could take the time to mention them, but, you know, things like the Holocaust and the killing fields of Cambodia and uh, what Alexander Solzhenitsyn called the Gulag Archipelago, these are the products of human reason. And I could go on and on. On the other hand, human reason also produces medical science. It's not that science is bad. Science is good. It's just that science, like every other human endeavor, has its flaws and its fallibilities, and we do best to heed them. So I wouldn't say reason is a whore. I would say it is a helpful but sometimes fickle spouse, but you know that doesn't have the ring to it that Luther's phrase is, so you'll probably forget it almost immediately after this lesson. Um, reason and faith aren't really divided. They, they really aren't. They work together. Uh, just think, if you call someone reasonable, that's a compliment. If you call someone faithful, that is also a compliment. So people who demonstrate good use of their reason and their faith are exemplary human beings. And we only feel divided between them because of our fallenness and sin. There's a whole history behind this supposed antagonism between reason and faith that I won't go into, but just to say that that's not biblical, either on the one side that we can ignore reason and just have faith, whatever that means, because it doesn't really make sense. You can't have faith in something you know nothing about, or that we can just have reason, but you can't really know anything unless you have some fundamental trust in many things. So faith as trust does play a part in all-knowing. Most personal knowledge in science comes actually through specific authorities. And, and actually, so does belief in revelation. And the question is, well, can you trust these authorities? And we should trust those authorities for which we have good reason to believe so. Now, I'm not going to get into it in detail now because I'll come to it later on in a different lesson. I think there are really good reasons to trust the authority of the Bible when it speaks to historical truth, but also when it speaks to transcendent truth, truth that we could call it invisible if we want, uh, but I think it makes itself known, uh, truths about God and reality beyond our five senses. And I think, I think the Bible is a true and reliable authority. So it's not faith and reason that are uh, in conflict. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this, in mere Christianity, he said, it's not between faith and reason. It's between faith and reason on one side and emotion and imagination on the other. And if you think about it, that's true. 
Um, I've had one panic attack in my whole life. I mean a full-blown, I'm, I'm going to really lose it here if something doesn't change kind of panic attack. And it's when I was put into one of those tube MRI, uh, MRI machines, which are like a, a, a metal coffin. And as soon as I was put in there, it was to get an MRI on my neck, um, I, I realized I had 30 seconds which to be removed from this situation, my reason told me, or I was seriously gonna freak out and start thrashing around. I just knew it. Um, and so I told the operator to pull me back out of there. And so my imagination and my emotion told me, you know, this is, you know, I'm gonna die in here, uh, or I'm gonna freak out or something like that, despite the fact that you're in there for a while, you know, maybe 45 minutes, but, you know, I mean, I lie down that long when I'm sleeping anyway. So the only alternative was to get medicated. We'll come back later to get medicated. So I said, no, I want to get this over with. So uh, I tried a little visualization. I thought, where would I be laying on my back doing absolutely nothing? So the beach. So I imagine being on a tropical beach and I just like prayed constantly. And so, on the one side, I had my emotion and my imagination tell me this was a dangerous situation that I needed to get out of. On the other hand, my reason telling me, no, this is, you're, you're lying down for 45 minutes. Get a grip, do this, and finish it. So the same thing can happen in, in faith in Christ. And things can get a lot worse than that. That was a pretty mundane example. So faith, C.S. Lewis says, is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. And this, this is why this is why you pledge to your spouse and you can keep your promise that you're going to have and hold from this day forward forevermore. And you should be able to do that despite your changing emotions. Since our emotions are bound to change, he writes further, his advice is apt. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. And apologetics would simply add that we must also be continually reminded of why we believe it. Now, I said before, and I think it was in the notes, that apologetics is one way that God can engender faith, and he also sustains it. And, and a, I think I'll get to it today, but I'm going to show a video from Dr. William Lane Craig who's going to say that, that apologetics is, is, in effect, the art and discipline of showing how our faith is true. And I would only say that it, sometimes the people that need to be shown this are ourselves. Um, I'm, I, I think Doubting Thomas got a bad rap. I think he should be just called Questioning Thomas. Questioning is not exactly doubt, and it's certainly not unbelief. So sometimes uh, we do need to have questions answered. We do need to be assured that there are good reasons for believing what we believe. And again, I think this is one means by which the Holy Spirit sustains faith. So faith and reason finally also interact with the continual process of faith-seeking understanding. Uh, both faith and the Bible and reality are deep 
Uh, God is literally unfathomable in the sense that you will never plumb the depths of God's being, but you can grow in understanding. So the face we first have as new believers or children is meant to be a goad and a guide to growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, as Peter said in 2 Peter. So how do we know that Christian faith is, in fact, reasonable and true? That's a good question, and that's really the subject of the entire course. But we'll give a preliminary answer. First, what does it mean to be true anyway? Well, truth basically is correspondence to reality. If it is what it is, then it's true. So it's sunny outside. I'd have to go out and check, and I could confirm that it's a cloudless day. It was cloudless this morning. It might not be the case now. Uh, we're in Wilder Elementary School. These are mundane things that correspond with the thing, with the way things actually are. Um, we're in the United States. I have three grandchildren. Um, we could go on and on about things that correspond to reality. Do what are called religious truths correspond to reality? Is there a God? Is the Bible true? Was Jesus Christ really raised from the dead? If we say these things are true, we mean they correspond to reality. We can have knowledge of the truth if we have justified true belief. If, if you're a philosopher, you'll know that this definition is somewhat controversial, but I think it's, it's apt enough uh, and useful enough that we'll say if we believe something to be true and we have good reasons to believe it, that is, we are justified in believing it, it is true, and, and it is true, then we have knowledge. It's called justified true belief. And so if what we believe corresponds to reality, that is, if we have good reasons to believe that it does so, then we can honestly say we have knowledge. And that's true whatever area you're looking at or thinking about, whether it's science, transcendent truths, political truths, historical truths, whatever. So how can we know that Christian faith is true? I want to show a short video from... William Lane Craig, who's a fairly well-known Christian philosopher who uh, focuses in apologetics. In understanding the relationship between faith and reason, I found it very helpful to distinguish how I know my faith to be true from how I show my faith to be true. I would say that the fundamental way in which we know that our faith is true is through the self-authenticating witness of God's Holy Spirit. That is to say, God himself in personal relationship with us bears witness to us that we are children of God and we are rightly related to him and that Christianity is therefore true. And what that implies is that even the most ignorant person, an illiterate peasant who has neither the time nor the resources nor the ability to study arguments for the existence of God or the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels, can know with confidence that Christianity is true because the Holy Spirit witnesses to him that it is true. It means that a mentally retarded person or a child can have a confident and rational uh, faith in uh, Christ because of the witness of the Spirit. So the fundamental way I think that we know our faith is true is through the witness of God's Spirit. 
But when it comes to showing someone else that our faith is true, then we're engaged in presenting arguments and evidence for our faith. And I would say that the way in which we show our faith is to be true is to uh, present uh, sound and persuasive arguments on behalf of Christian truth claims uh, that appeal to objective reason and evidence. So that would be the way in which I understand the relationship between faith and reason. So the rest of what I'm going to talk about from almost from this point forward is going to be doing uh, pretty much what Dr. Craig just said, uh, presenting uh, good reasons, good arguments for why we know the Christian faith is true. Um, I won't back up and pull it up, but just keep in mind the Nicene Creed. We believe, and there's a whole list of things, and it's, it's like right in the center of the liturgy. And what I want to say is that this isn't just something we repeat to make ourselves feel good. It isn't something we repeat because that's our club motto. We, we say this and we say we believe it because we believe it is the truth. And, and because we believe it's true, we also believe it is the hope of the world. And I would simply further add that the entire liturgy from the first hymn to the last hymn, everything in between, including Nick's sermon. Now, I'm sure Nick would affirm that he's not necessarily infallible, but I would say he aims at truth. Do you not? Nick, he's nodding yes. And, and I would affirm that uh, more often than not, he hits it. Uh, the last, you, you can parse that out. It's meant to be a compliment. Uh, the last hymn we sang, Be Thou My Vision, which is my favorite hymn. And I can't even think of this. I, maybe Holy, Holy, Holy is the second favorite, but that's it's like a distant second. I believe that is an affirmation of the truth in a more personal way, but nonetheless. And the liturgy itself, which goes, well, elements of it go back further, but goes back to Thomas Cranmer. He was aiming at a, a celebration of worship through liturgy that preached the gospel and preached justification by faith. And, and I would affirm that I think he hit that more often than not, too. That the liturgy itself is intended to be an affirmation of truth. And so it's claiming not that these are things that we want to say to enable our wishful thinking or to give us a false hope, we declare these things to be true, and therefore our hope is real. And so is anybody that hears it and believes it. Um, at the end of all these sessions, I'm going to give a short apologetic for Anglicanism in general, but I'll just say at this point, one of the reasons why, uh, after being raised Episcopalian and then uh, not really drifting away, but uh, being in another denomination for many years while I came back to Anglicanism was, was the belief that to go through the liturgy of the prayer book and to actually believe it, I think is to be saved. And it's important that you believe it. Again, if you're just repeating it as a mantra, if you're just doing it for the emotional response, or if you're just saying it as a club motto, that's one thing. It's an affirmation of truth. But if we believe it, we are believing the gospel. 
So this is what Dr. Craig said. Basic assurance is that we can know the Christian faith is true and reasonable through innate knowledge, immediate experience, and the witness of the Holy Spirit. Basic apologetics is the use of reason, evidence, and arguments to persuade people that the gospel and the Christian faith are true and reasonable. They are, they are also unspeakable joy and delight, but not if they're not true. Uh, it's been attributed to various people. I've heard it attributed to Galileo. Um, but, you know, I, I don't really know who first said, the mind cannot rejoice, I mean, the heart cannot rejoice in what the mind rejects as false. And this is true uh, no matter what your education level, no matter what your achievement, no matter what, that if you really don't believe something is true, you really can't rejoice in it. And I'll say that even though we know in modern psychology the element of denial when we try and bury what we know to be true or bury what we know to be false. But I think uh, deep down we all know things uh, that are false or that we take to be false can in no way lead to our rejoicing. So I think it's important to actually affirm that what we are preaching, what we are teaching, what we are saying about God and salvation in Jesus Christ is the truth. It corresponds to reality. Finally, there was a uh, not well-known, but a significant apologist uh, early in my uh, Christian life, Paul Little, who wrote uh, two well-known books, uh, Know What You Believe, and then the second one, Know Why You Believe. He says, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, no man will believe. But one of the instruments the Holy Spirit uses to bring enlightenment is a reasonable explanation of the gospel and of God's dealings with men. And I think this is thoroughly biblical. So what we're going to do the rest of the time that we have is we are going to show the truth of what I'm going to call the four foundational claims of the Christian faith. Why I call them foundational is because they're very fundamental. They follow logically. And if any one of them, well, Particularly the first three, if, if any one of them is not true, then Christianity can't possibly be true. And the first, of course, is there is a God. But I don't think I need to explain that any further. If there is no God, then Christianity can't possibly be true. Uh, it is true that, I'm, I'm going to say ontologically, the second fundamental truth is that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God and the Savior of the world. But how do we know that? Well, we know it primarily now through the Bible. And again, I believe in the testimony of the Holy Spirit, but I think the Spirit primarily works by letting us know that Scripture is true and that the preaching we hear based on Scripture is true. So I'm going to say that the second foundational truth claim is that the Bible is true. Now, if there is no God, the Bible can't be true. The Bible doesn't even try to prove God. It presupposes this from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. Now, if the Bible is not true, 
And we have no way of knowing this. And as a matter of fact, it's likely false. Paul himself affirmed something similar when he said in Corinthians, if Christ is not risen, then your faith and my preaching are a complete waste of time. I'm paraphrasing only slightly. But then he said, of course, Christ is risen. And he knew it by personal experience, not simply by eyewitness testimony. We know it primarily by eyewitness testimony, but including the confirmation from the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the Christian faith makes sense. And this is, there, this is a statement which I will unpack but just say, I really think the Christian faith is something that we would want to be true, that makes sense in and of itself, and that explains us to ourselves and explains why reality is the way it is in a way that nothing else does. So these four foundational truth claims, if we can show, as Dr. Craig put it, that these are true, then we have really good reasons to say that our faith in Jesus Christ is perfectly true and reasonable. And that I am going to start doing right now because the first part of declaring that there is a God really talks about the interaction of faith and reason too in a a way that lines up with what Scripture says. Let me say this. So why do we even think about God? I mean, even atheists think about God, and they seem to think about God sometimes more than some people who call themselves Christians think about God. I've read some atheists who are obsessed with God. They seem to have anger issues with God, and I'm serious about that. Uh, So why do we even think about God? I I don't know that the percentages have changed since the last time I checked, but approximately 90% plus of the people on the face of the earth believe that there is a God, thought of typically as some sort of supreme being. They may not believe anything else. I'm not saying this is saving knowledge. Uh, The Apostle James says that you believe there is one God. Good for you. The demons also believe that, and, and they're terrified. So belief in God itself doesn't necessarily save you. Belief that something is true. But... It does speak to the fact that there is this, uh, I will say, undeniable yet deniable, as paradoxical as as that is. So Paul in Romans uh, chapter 1 will talk about uh, people who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. By teaching falsity, by ignoring the truth around us that tells us that is God, you can actually try and suppress and deny that God has made himself evident to everybody. So God has imprinted on us like a trademark. This is not Descartes' terminology, but was applied to his philosophical argument. He has imprinted on us like a trademark an awareness of his existence because we're created in his image. And it's, it's ineradicable. Because we're created in God's image, there is, I'll say, a residue of awareness that God exists. We can deny and try and cover it up, but it won't go away. There's two ways of looking at this. I don't don't think they're opposite. I think they're complementary, but I'll I'll give you both. First of all, there was uh, John Calvin. He was taking a cue from the Apostle Paul, and 
he believed, of course, he was simply unpacking what Paul says. And I'll just acknowledge, well, perhaps that's somewhat debatable. And if you want to debate, that's fine. I'm not a Calvinist. He was a right smart guy. He said a lot of true things, but he wasn't infallible either. And and if 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 you really like Calvin, okay, I will pick on Luther here in a second. But anyway, Reformation theologian insisted, this is from the Institutes, uh, there is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. God has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. All perceive that there is a God and that he is their maker. And and Calvin would have said that this is innate. It's just there by virtue of being born human. And somehow even babies have this innate knowledge of God. They come to an awareness that there is God. Uh, I tend to agree with that. I tend to think that there is simply within human being this knowledge that we're not alone, there is another reality, and that reality is somebody who calls us to account, somebody who is greatly powerful and has created this universe we find ourselves in, and that we can call God. But that leads to... Well, I'm going to say what Lutheran theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg said about it, but I I think he unpacks Luther fairly faithfully. Speaks of an individual non-thematic knowledge of God. It's It's an awareness of something, a mystery, that as we grow and we experience, as we see the glory of the heavens, and as we learn and experience life around it, it becomes an awareness of God as God beginning of in, in infancy. And further, uh, if, you, if you know Wolfhart Pannenberg, he was famous for saying that revelation, that history is of, of itself a form of revelation, which is controversial, and I don't necessarily completely agree with that. But I do agree with this. In the history of humanity, there has always been in some form an explicit awareness of God which is linked to the experience of the works of creation. And you can look at you can look at this from a strictly history of a religion's point of view and you can see that this is true. There has always been some group and usually many groups who will say that we know God because of his works in creation. So there's two ways of looking at it that I would say are complementary. That first of all we know God because he is ensured by creating us in his image, that even though we are fallen and even though we are sinful, there is sometimes faint, sometimes we can cover it up, sometimes we can deny it. There is the memory and the awareness of God. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and pause there. This is where we'll come up next. But does anybody have any questions about anything today? mainly about reason and faith, how they work, uh, and how God makes himself known to us through our reason and through our faith. Anybody have any questions? Yes, uh, John. Right, so uh, John has asked, did C.S. Lewis say, uh, is conscious an aspect of our memory of God or our, our knowledge of God? Yes, it is. He is famous for the moral argument that he put into mere Christianity, which everybody has awareness of what he calls the Tao, 
which is sort of like the way things are morally speaking, and that everybody has uh, a knowledge of right and wrong, and this is true, and that because of that, there must be a moral law giver. Now, he has a whole train of steps, and yes, I am getting to that very directly eventually, but he has a whole train of logical steps to go from uh, the universal human understanding that there is a right and wrong to there must be a God who establishes the fact that there is right and wrong. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes. Well, I would agree with with, uh, pretty much everything Robbie said about the nature of uh, how we come to faith. Was that a fair summation of what you just said without any detail? Except about the not persuading. Um, It depends on what you mean by persuasion and the context. Persuade them to come to saving faith. Right. We, our wills do not convince other wills that you should do this. Paul does, though, speak of, and I would simply say it means persuade, probably in a different way than what you're saying. He said, knowing the terror of God, that's an interesting phrase, we persuade men. Okay. Uh, men should fear God, whatever. There's a whole discussion there, there where what does fear of the Lord mean? So I won't go there right now. Uh, yeah, there is a process by, by which, again, the Holy Spirit can use any means he chooses. I had a friend once who said he got saved sitting at the end of a dock on the Chesapeake Bay watching the sun go down. I'm not going to argue with his experience. That's one thing you cannot argue with is you cannot, don't try and argue with people's experience. Um, they had an experience, good or bad. Uh, but you can argue about facts, and you can argue about consequences, and you can argue about ideas. Uh, to me, the paradigm is Paul in Athens. And at the beginning of chapter 17 in Acts, it talks about how he went to the synagogue and reasoned from the scriptures to people who believe the scriptures, to the Jews, and told them how from the scriptures you can know that Jesus is the Christ and you should believe in him. Then he went down to the marketplace, the Areopagus in Athens, and he reasoned and argued with the philosophers. Now, he eventually gets to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which for your good Greco-Roman philosopher would, would be a silly thing to say. But along the way, he actually uses some of the things that we agree about. He he, that the, the philosophers would agree about. So he says, you know, you have uh, a statue to the unknown God, and some of your philosophers have said, in him we live and move and have our being. That's actually a quote from a Greek philosopher, by the way, not, not from Paul himself. And he says, so what you say is unknown, I'm going to declare to you. So I'm sure he shared something with them, uh, the history of Israel, and the story of Jesus Christ, and then he told them about the resurrection. And it says, well, a lot of them scoffed at him, but some believed. So one could say that those believed, the Holy Spirit persuaded them through the use of what Paul had to say. So again, I would just say the Holy Spirit uses means. And he can use whatever means he chooses that are commensurate with God's nature. Any other questions? Okay, well, thank you very much for coming, and next week I will try and persuade you that God exists. (laughs)